I get the pleasure of leading a Bible study for our college students every Monday morning. And for the past few months, we've been going through the book of Jeremiah together. And Jeremiah is nothing new for me. It is by far my favorite book in the Bible. I have read it, uh, the whole thing from chapter one to chapter 52, countless times, probably really count. There is a way to count. It's about three times actually I've done it. But, uh, and some of my most formative moments of my, of my faith, the most formative moments of my faith have been centered around the book of Jeremiah. Ten years ago when I was in high school, uh, I was going into my junior year of high school, actually, and I heard God call me into something at a summer camp. But I didn't understand what that call was, what it was that God was calling me into. And so Bill actually pulled me aside at that camp, and, and he walked me through Jeremiah 33.3, where God tells the prophet, God says, call to me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which you did not know. And so I did just that. And throughout that, this season of my life, from that day till now, I continue to find myself calling out to God, asking for him to reveal things to me. And I say all that because there's usually very little new for me in the book of Jeremiah. I know how almost everything takes place. I know how God promises to bring disaster from the north. I know how Jeremiah complains again and again and again about the things that God is asking him to do. I know how Jeremiah brings to the people the promise of restoration that God gives them, of restoration after 70 years in Babylon. And every time now that I, I read through it, there's nothing really that strikes me as surprising. When I go through the pages of, of the weeping prophet, as Jeremiah is known, it, it all is known to me. It doesn't stand out. But this time, it was actually very different. Uh, God lays out his indictment of his people, his charges against his people in Jeremiah chapter six. And the charges that he brings against them here he are ultimately the charges for which he gives his people over to Babylon. He allows Babylon to come in and conquer his people for the things he says they've been doing in Jeremiah chapter six. And in Jeremiah chapter six, starting in verse 14, or sorry, starting in verse 13, God gives this scathing charge of his people. He says this, he says, from the least to the greatest, all are greedy for gain. Prophets and priests alike all practice deceit. They dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. I've read those words probably dozens of times before now, and they've never stood out to me before that Monday morning weeks ago. When I read them with our college students, and since then, those words have become the most obnoxious and convicting earworm of my entire life. Uh, when I wake up, peace, peace, when there is no peace. When I sit down to rest, peace, peace, when there is no peace. When I'm writing a lesson for our high school students or our college students or even a sermon for a Sunday morning, all I hear is peace, peace, when there is no peace. And I didn't understand why. For weeks, all I could hear from God, peace, peace peace when there is no peace. And for weeks, I treated it as a, a distant idea, a fleeting thought, something that I should probably pay attention to at some point down the road until it wasn't anymore. And I realized that God wasn't trying to draw my attention to something new. He, wasn't, he was in fact charging me with the very same thing that he charged the priests and the prophets of Jerusalem with 2,500 years ago, of dressing the wounds of his people as if they were not serious and saying, peace, peace, 
when there was no peace. I've been more devoted to, to order than to justice. I've preferred a, a negative peace, which is, right, the absence of tension to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice. I have constantly said, I agree with you in the goals that you seek, but I cannot agree with your methods of action. I, I paternalistically believed I could set a timetable for another person's freedom. I, I live by this mythical concept of waiting for a more convenient season. And through it all, I have dressed the wounds of God's people as if they were not serious. And from this very stage, I have said, peace, peace, when there was no peace. The reality is there was no peace for George Floyd. There was no peace for Breonna Taylor. There was no peace for Ahmed Arbery. There was no peace for Botham Jean. There was no peace for Tatiana Jefferson. There was no peace for Philando Castile. There was no peace for Tamir Rice. There was no peace for Eric Garner. And there was no peace for, for countless other lives lost through acts of violence, of racist, senseless violence that just happened to not be caught on camera. And today I'm unwilling to say peace, peace when there is no peace. I'm unwilling to stand up here and say peace, peace, that things are at peace, that the world is the way that it should be. And today, unlike any other Sunday morning when we would normally be in this room together, you have a choice. On a normal Sunday, you're a captive audience. Odds are you're not going to stand up and walk out of here. But today you have a very different choice because the reality is you can choose not to listen to me. You can choose to turn off your TV or flip to another channel. You can choose to do absolutely anything other than listen to me right now. But I've also made a choice, a choice that I believe is to be faithful to the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called children of God. Blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called children of God. And if we are going to be peacemakers as, Je as Jesus calls us to, then we are going to have to recognize that God's peace requires restoration, not a return to our usual situation. Being a peacemaker means seeking out God's restoration, his restoration for each of us individually, his restoration for his people, and his restoration for the world. His peace doesn't mean that we want to have a lack of tension or go back to the way things used to, before, to be before. It means to restore things to the way that God intended them to be. And in Mark chapter five, we get a glimpse of Jesus as peacemaker. We get a glimpse of Jesus as a restorer and it comes right out of a story that follows immediately after Jesus calms the wind and the waves on the Sea of Galilee, right? A story we all know. <clears throat> and as that story took place, they were headed across the Sea of Galilee. They were headed across this lake to go into Gentile territory. They were going into an area known as the Decapolis. There were 10 cities there. This was territory that was not Jewish territory. It was Gentile land. 
It was non-Jewish land, and Jesus is going there, and then it's there that we see the story take place in Mark chapter 5, and we see this. It says, they went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes, who are the people who live in Gerasa, one of the cities of the Decapolis. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. So what we see is this man has been forced to the edges of society, that the people of Gerasa, they've pushed him away. They, they've chained him up in a tomb out in the hills outside of their city. They, they don't know what else to do with him. And this man comes running down to Jesus, and Jesus sees him. And we're going to skip down to verse 9 to see their interaction, just to to save a moment of time. And in verse 9, it says this. It says, then Jesus asked him, what is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs. Allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. This demon we see in the story, right? It's not just one demon. It's a legion of demons. And just as a note, it's not really important to today, but just as a note, Gerasa, the the city in this region of the Decapolis, it was actually home at the time to the Roman 10th Legion which was seen as a symbol of Rome's oppression and Rome's rule and subjugation of God's people. And I think we would be naive to think that the idea of Jesus casting a legion out of this place would not have been something that Mark's audience would have lost. They would have immediately seen what Jesus was trying to say. But, but out of that, what I want us to focus on today What I want us to focus on is the way that restoration requires us to address the problem and not just the symptoms. Restoration requires us to address the issue as it really is, the problem as it really is, and not just the symptoms that we might see from it. We don't know why the people of Geressa chose to chain this man up and push him out to the tombs and push him to the edges of society. It might have been the case that they they couldn't control his symptoms. They couldn't control the behavior that came from being possessed by a legion of demons. It might be true that they tried everything they could think of and nothing else worked. And so this is what they were left with. We don't know. But what we do see is that the people have decided they're just going to treat the symptom and not the problem itself. They're going to address the behavioral issue. They're going to push him to the outskirts because it'll deal with the problem, but they, with the symptoms, but they have no plan for dealing with the problem itself. But when Jesus arrives on the scene, he immediately addresses the problem. He doesn't even spend any time on the symptoms, right? He goes straight to the problem. He casts the legion of demons out of the man and into the nearby herd of pigs. And in the same way that Jesus addresses the problem directly, we have to address the problem when it comes to restoration. And that's true in our personal lives as well. 
For us to be restored, we have to address the problems and not the symptoms in our lives. I talk with students and parents all the time about what it looks like to change a behavior. A behavior that they don't want, a behavior that they don't want to see in themselves anymore, a behavior they don't want to see in their kids anymore, whether it's a tendency to lie and deceive or to struggle with school or or a general sense of disrespect. And what I've seen time and time again is that for behavior to change, for the symptoms to be relieved, you have to address the heart problem first. We can try and try and try to restrain our behavior, to hold ourselves back from doing things, but that restraint tends to only last for so long if we haven't addressed the heart problem first. Jesus himself even says that it is out of an abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. And we can see that goes beyond just the words that we say, but even the actions that we take. Whatever struggle we we feel in our behaviors flows out of a struggle we have in our hearts. A struggle with pride, a struggle with greed, a struggle with lust, a struggle with any other sort of heart problem. And now I want to be clear, that doesn't mean that you ignore the symptoms while you address the problem, right? Just as a doctor gives you a prescription for cough medicine when they prescribe you an antibiotic for bronchitis or whatever, you should be working on the symptoms while you address the heart problem. When it comes to restoration in our personal lives, we have to address the problem. We can work on the symptoms. We should work on the symptoms. We should do our best to live the lives that Jesus has called us to. But to do that, not just for a short momentary season, but for our lives, we have to address the problems of our hearts. And the same idea is true when we move to a wider level, not just individual restoration, but communal restoration. There are problems that plague our society and plague our communities, and we see the symptoms of those problems all around us right now. And I just want to say this, but before we go any further, I want to note something. I just want to note this. It is entirely antithetical to the Christian faith to treat an individual based upon a group they find themselves a part of. Bill even said last week, right, he taught us in a passage where Paul says, in Christ there is no longer slave nor free, there is no longer Jew nor Gentile, there is no longer male nor female, because in Christ we are one. It is antithetical to the Christian life to treat all people of one group in the same way, to treat an individual based on preconceived ideas we have of a group. And that is true for all of us, whether you're a police officer in this community or you are a member of this community who has been out protesting this week or the weekend before. I know many police officers who are part of this community, who are part of this congregation, who are filled with love and kindness and compassion and seek every day to go to work and be Christ-like peacemakers in their line of work. And I know members of this congregation who were out in the streets protesting 
and who in their actions are working to be Christ-like peacemakers in those moments. It is impossible for us to love people the way Christ calls us to if we are going to treat them based on a group they find themselves in. Now, it'd be easy for us to to focus on the symptoms themselves right now instead of the heart problem. And I've seen it a lot. To say people shouldn't be destroying property. People shouldn't be disrupting the freeway. And the reality is that is right. We should not condone destruction. We should not condone looting. We should not condone behavior that honestly goes against what Christ calls us to. But those things are are a symptom of a deeper problem. They're a symptom of a, a deeper communal heart problem, a problem that if unaddressed will continue to produce symptoms we don't want to see will continue to produce symptoms that lead us further and further from the world that Christ, that God designed for us. If we want to see communal restoration, if we want to be peacemakers, then we are going to have to recognize at the root, the heart problem that that racial animosity poses for us. We're going to have to be able to look directly at the problem and not just try to address symptoms as we see them. Last week at the Beach Point Update, Bill talked about what it looks like for us to uproot the things from our hearts that we need to let go. And the reality is I think all of us Every single one of us has things to uproot from our hearts when it comes to this. That if what Christ calls us to is to love our neighbors, to love them as ourselves, to love one another as he has loved us, then we're going to have to recognize the fact that no matter how small the seed is, it is opposed to Jesus. However small and faint and hidden the seed is, the seed of racial animosity, it is opposed to what Jesus calls us to. And if we want to be peacemakers and we want to see restoration, that means we're going to have to address the problem head on. Restoration requires us to address the problem and and not just the symptoms. But what we're also going to see is that restoration requires sacrifice. If we address problems... Directly, it will require sacrifice for us. In this story, we see sacrifice. There's an actual sacrifice of property in the pigs, right? 2,000 pigs run into the ocean because Jesus came and brought peace into this community. He restored this community. We see more that there's sacrifice involved. 
But what we have to do is we have to be people who are willing to count the cost. Jesus invites us to that time and time again to see what is required of us, to count the cost of what is required of us, to count the cost of addressing the problem directly. Because the reality is there will be a cost. And the sad reality is that we have an actual choice about whether or not we are willing to accept that cost or not. What we see in the rest of the story in verse 14, it says this. It says, those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town. They reported that the pigs all ran away. In the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there dressed in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those people who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. See, Jesus came to bring peace and he came to bring restoration and they saw it. These people saw it. They saw the man sitting there in his right mind, restored by Jesus And they decide the cost isn't worth it. What it might cost them, what peace might cost them wasn't worth it in the end. So we have a choice today. A choice of whether we're going to be willing to be peacemakers to address the problems in our own hearts and to count the cost, to recognize that there will be sacrifice involved in restoration. But the Christian life is a life of sacrifice, of emptying yourself, of following a Savior who gave his very last breath for you and for me, of pouring ourselves out for those around us, But you have a choice. A choice to decide whether you want to be a peacemaker the way Jesus calls us to or, or you want to do something else. What we see from the Bible, from the whole New Testament really, is that being a peacemaker, the way that Jesus invites us to being a peacemaker is worth it. That no matter the cost, no matter the sacrifice, no matter the work, no matter the effort, it's worth it. In James 3.18, James says this. He says, peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Interestingly enough, that word he uses for righteousness is the same word for justice. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of justice. I want to reap a harvest of justice. In so many ways, we've been seeing our community right now, our Beach Point community, try to be peacemakers who sow peace in our community, caring for people all around us in need, in Oakview and in the city of Found Valley, through the food pantry, through efforts in the midst of everything going on in COVID, during COVID, to be peacemakers. And in this moment, 
As the moment was not chaotic enough to begin with, I think Jesus is calling us to be peacemakers in a new way. Inviting us to be peacemakers who sow peace in a whole new way for our church. Who sow peace, maybe in ways we're not even aware of yet. But what I know is that if we do that, we will reap a harvest of righteousness. We will reap a harvest of justice. We all get to see a day, hopefully one day, where we can come together and we can say, peace, peace. And the reality is that there is peace. There is restoration. And so to be a part of that, we're going to have some some opportunities coming up even in the week to come. But the first thing I want to invite you to is just to find space to listen. It's easy to dress the wounds of God's people as not serious if you don't see the wounds of God's people. It's easy to say peace, peace when there is no peace if you're not seeing the lack of peace around you. So I would just invite us this week, this month, this year to be people who listen who hear the wounds of God's people, who see the the lack of peace that they're experiencing, and who are ready to be peacemakers, people seeking God's restoration for themselves, for the community, and for the world. Heavenly Father, God, we just pray that even today you would make us peacemakers. Lord, we pray the prayer of St. Francis. God, we just pray that you would make us an instrument of your peace. God, where there is hatred, let us sow love. God, we wanna be instruments of your peace, of your restoration in this world. And so God, we pray that even right now, you would show us in our hearts the problems we need to uproot the problems we need to address in ourselves. That you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see, God. And I pray that you would help us see the problems of our community, the problems of our city, of our state, of our nation. And that you help us see what does it look like for us here at Beach Point, God, to be peacemakers. God, we pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.